0: Hello and welcome to episode 219 of the Modern Manager. I'm your host, Mamie Canfor Stewart. A warm welcome to Jeannie H, Megan L, Becky D, Sydney K, Lindsay P, and Allison D to the Modern Manager membership community. For five dollars per month, you can engage directly with me and other members in our private Slack group, where people share resources, ask questions, and celebrate wins. I personally respond to every question, and I would love to help you in any ways that I can. Learn more about the membership levels and sign up today at themodernmanager.com slash join. Now, today's guest is Rob Toomey. As president of TypeCoach, Rob lives at the intersection of his two passions, personality type and entrepreneurship. Working with 800 global client organizations, he has delivered live sessions to more than 50,000 participants and the TypeCoach online tools have reached more than 185,000 people. Rob is also the managing director of the Idea Factory, which is focused on early stage app and website projects. Rob and I talk about the four temperaments. He'll explain these better than I can in one sentence, but in essence, we're talking about the four different personality type core values and motivators. By understanding which of the four temperaments your team member identifies with, you will be able to use more effective strategies to motivate, appreciate, and engage the person. If you want to know more about personality type and preferences, I interviewed Rob in episode 14, Personality and Preferences with Rob Toomey. So I highly recommend you check it out because we go into lots of good detail on all of those different personality types and preferences. So now here's the conversation.
1: You're listening to The Modern Manager, a podcast dedicated to helping you be a rock star boss with a thriving team. Whether you're looking to upgrade your meetings, cultivate your team, or grow as a leader, this podcast is for you. Now, here's your host, Mamie Canfer stewart
0: Thank you so much for joining me today, Rob. I know this is only officially our second time having you on the show, but this is actually our second version of this conversation because the first one had some technical difficulties. So I'm excited to jump back in and talk about the four temperaments and uh, get to learn from you again.
2: Well, I'm excited to be here, Mamie, for the second time again.
0: (laughs) All right. So, last time you were here, we talked about the Myers Briggs based personality and preferences. And one of the things that I learned through your program was about the four temperaments, which are particular aspects or combinations of letters that have kind of different characteristics and traits. So, before we dive into those four temperaments, it might be helpful for you to give us just a quick overview of the various letters and how all of those different personality and preference traits fit so that we can kind of use that as a framing for the conversation on temperament. So why don't you start with just that overview?
2: Sure thing. I'll keep it as short as I can. So, uh, yeah, the building blocks of personality type, you know, is sort of brought to life by Carl Jung and then further clarified by Isabel Myers and then made famous by the Myers-Briggs type indicator and in that whole sort of universe. Uh, you know, that's talking about extroversion, introversion, which is how we get our energy, sensing and intuition, which is how we sort of take in and process information. Sensing types are focused on the sort of practical realities, the grounded uh, world around them, you know, they tend to focus more on the short term here and now, whereas intuitive types are looking about the future the possibilities, what might be down the road. Uh, And I always like to say on that one that, you know, we're spending, you know, during the course of any given day, a lot of time in both of those camps because we have to. It's uh, situational. Uh, So people uh, actually tend to develop pretty strong capabilities in both of those areas. Then we have the thinking and the feeling uh, preference, which is how we make our decisions. Uh, Thinkers leaning first towards the pros and cons. Feelers starting first with this sort of impact on the people and the gut check. Do I feel right about this? And then finally, you have the judging and the perceiving uh, piece, which is our preference for structure. So, judges like to have a plan, like to stick to a plan, pushing for closure relatively early on in the conversation versus our perceiving friends who are more sort of spontaneous and open and actually kind of feel a little uh, discomfort when forced to make a choice. So, those are the building blocks. As you mentioned, the four temperaments. It's actually been a a topic studied throughout human history across different cultures. Uh, It's certain combinations of these letters, as David Kearsey was actually able to sort of suss out uh, back in the 1970s, that touch on people's motivations and really what's uh, at the core of their personality.
0: Amazing. And so I know you went really quickly. So for anyone listening, if you want more, we have an earlier episode, which I will link to in the show notes so that you can get the full depth and breadth of these different personality traits. But with the temperaments, why don't you walk us through each of those four temperaments and then we can spend more time kind of digging into each one.
2: Sure thing. So yeah, I think the temperament stuff is really where it starts to get interesting. So we say building blocks when we refer to the preferences, because you kind of have to understand a little bit about that before you can build them up into the temperament uh, concept. So there are four temperaments. As a subject, it's been studied throughout human history dating back to 450 BC when Hippocrates himself wrote down these four broad descriptions into which all people seem to fit. And then, as I mentioned, David Kersey in the 1970s was studying both the work of the various people who've worked on the sort of temperament principles over time and the work of Jung and Myers and sort of found that they actually link up. And so uh, people who have a preference for sensing, which is grounded, practical, and realistic, combined with the judging preference, he just found sort of match up with this description we've seen throughout human history, and they've, they've been called lots of different things. In our world, we call them traditionalists, which means they have a strong respect for how things have been done in the past and, uh, for the most part, prefer to keep things going the way that they've gone before because they know that it works. From a core values perspective and their core drivers, it's about, about being reliable and responsible. So... What's really interesting about the temperaments, and you see this here with the traditionalists, is a lot of our actions and statements and sort of even our beliefs can be traced back to those core drivers. So it's a great explanation for the why. Why do people do the crazy and wonderful things that they do? And for the most part, we can trace it back to their temperaments and that core need at the heart of their personality. So that that's the traditionalists. I can go on to the next group if you, if you want me to pause and stop for a second for an observation or two.
0: Yeah, actually, let's stay on this one for a second because this was my husband and this is your wife. And so we both have lots of firsthand experience with these traditionalists. And I'm wondering if you can uh, share an example of, you know, how this shows up in the workplace.
2: Yeah. So, I mean, traditionalists go to work to be reliable and responsible. So, they want to take on more and more responsibility during the course of their career. And they want to prove to you, you can count on me. So, they they say things like, my word is my bond. You know, if I've said I'm going I'm to get this to you by three o'clock, then I have to move heaven and earth because they really can't imagine a world where they don't have the opportunity to follow through on their commitments. That's how strongly they feel it where it shows up as potential sources of conflict is when you're asking them to do something that they have not tried out before. And they're saying, well, we have an existing process or solution in place. Why would we just give that up in favor of something new? Uh, And the answer is, you know, that's coming from a place of reliability and responsibility because they're looking to avoid doing something that doesn't have the same track record and has therefore a higher sort of failure rate as a possibility.
0: Yeah, and I I would add to this one of the things that, really bothers my husband is when I check on things that he's already committed to, right? When he knows he's going to get it done and my asking, how's that going? It becomes uh, almost like my disbelief that he's actually going to make it happen, which seems to like irk him to the core.
2: Yes, it is a core values violation. We have to be very careful with that. So if a traditionalist, this uh, sensing judging combination gets a whiff that we don't think that they're reliable and dependable, you're going to see fireworks. And so obviously your question is uh, in- innocent in its way, and yet they're likely to take it as an affront to their reliability and response. Hey, if I've said that I'm going to get it done, I, I everything, every fiber of my being is wrapped up in ensuring that. So even asking the question can be seen as an insinuation that you don't think that I'm going to do it.
0: So do you have any tips for how we can inquire when, you know, of course, we trust people and we believe they're going to do it. But, you know, sometimes you still just want to know where things are at or you want to kind of double check that things are on track. So is there a better way to go about checking in with a traditionalist?
2: Yeah, we we talk a lot on our team about how we frame questions. So uh, you can say exactly that. Be like, hey, listen, I know you're all over it, but it's just helpful for me to understand where we're at in the process. Uh, so if you can underscore that reliability piece and ensure that, you know, they understand that you're not questioning that, you're just looking for some data or even say, you know, so-and-so needs to know what the actual progression is, it depersonalizes it and also sort of makes it, you know, less about that core value piece being uh, attacked.
0: Amazing. And what about when you are making a recommendation for a change, right? You mentioned that traditionalists are can be a little weary of shaking things up when they have a system that feels like it's working. Any suggestions for how to help them move in that that new direction?
2: Yes, listen to their concerns. <laughs> That's <laughs> rule number 1. They're going to have specific concerns, and the biggest obstacle to getting them on board with change is not recognizing those concerns. I always say that you don't have to have a magic wand to make all the concerns go away, but you need to have a receptacle for those concerns to be placed into so that they feel that they have been responsible. The biggest sort of way to sort of break up a whole change initiative is to not listen to this group who have real concerns and are, you know, trying to flex that responsibility muscle. And if there's nowhere for that concern to go, then they essentially are building a case in their mind against what you're suggesting. And that will often prevent it from happening.
0: All right. Such good tips. All right. Let's move on to the next temperament.
2: Yes. And as you know, this is also a sensing type. So grounded, practical, and realistic. But now we swap out that judging preference, which is pushing for closure, and we add in the playful, spontaneous, perceiving preference. So we get this SP experiencer group. Uh, I should have mentioned that the first group is about 40% in the overall population, and the experiencer group is the next most numerous at roughly 30% of the population. Uh, For them, the core driver is to jump in, take action, and get impressive results quickly. So I always like to say, while everyone else is forming a committee, the SPs have just gone and done it. They have a sort of really interesting knack or gift for seeing the elegant pathway between point A and point B. I like to think of them, uh, not only do they probably represent a high percentage of those doing parkour, but they are parkour artists and sort of everything they do. They have this elegant way of finding this sort of fun way to get from point A to point B. Really practical, really down-to-earth, really uh, playful in their style. Very different sort of look and feel to the first group that we saw.
0: All right. So what are some of the things that can kind of irk or get under the skin of an SP?
2: Well, the easiest way to demotivate them is by taking yourself in the situation too seriously. SPs get irked when their freedom is cut down, when there's too much formality, when there's just a whole bunch of busy worker admin stuff. They want to be where the action is and they want to have a clear path to taking action. So anything that stands in that way is going to sort of slow them down and get them annoyed.
0: And what about what how can we then manage them when we have processes and we have to pace things and we can't just jump into everything and not everything can be fun. Sometimes it has to just be what it is. What do we do with those people?
2: Yeah, I think we got to find ways for them to be impressive. Uh, So breaking things that are sort of long term or vague into very clear, actionable sprints, and then saying, what do you think? What's the fastest you could get this done? And they will impress you. And you're like, I actually did not think you could do it that quickly. Uh, We do this with my daughter, who's an SP. You know, big assignments are really kind of hard for her to tackle all at once. And this is a developmental thing for her in addition to her preferences. But we say, hey, why don't you see how fast you can read 25 pages? And sure enough, she comes back with a, a better than expected performance in that category. The SPs want to impress you. And so how can you ask them in a great way to do that impressive piece and then put a fun reward out there? Like, hey, look, if you get this done by one o'clock, take the afternoon off, go have fun. They're looking for, you know, the, the sort of process piece doesn't have to be a grind.
0: That makes a lot of sense. And I'm wondering if there are approaches that have to do with like gamification that I know has become popular in some organizations where, you know, how many tasks can you check off in the thing and you get the little you know, award for completing so many tasks. Are those kinds of, you know, playful things part of their uh, experience self?
2: I always like to say that, you know, those universal psychological techniques work on pretty much everyone, but they are especially useful for this group you know, the SJs, the traditionalist group that we went through uh, first are going to finish things just out of that sense of responsibility and reliability. And this group is going to basically be like, do I really have to? So if we can make it a little bit of fun, if we can shake it up a little bit, they're going to have a much higher follow through rate on it for sure.
0: Awesome. All right. What is the next group?
2: The next group, we're going to switch over to the first of the two intuitive types. So now we're moving from that that sensing preference, which is grounded, practical, and realistic, to focusing on the future possibilities, what might be the possibilities that could come uh, around the corner. The first of the group has a thinking preference. So this is intuition combined with thinking. So pros and cons uh, analysis. We call them conceptualizers. They've been called lots of other things like rationals and so on. We think they make up about 15% of the overall population, and their core driver is to raise the bar on their competencies and ultimately leave some kind of legacy. And I always like to point out, a legacy doesn't mean a statue of them out front. It's that everyone on the team knows that before Rob came in, it was here, and after Rob left, it was better. And some sort of impact that they've left uh, to sort of signal that they were there, that's what a legacy means for them. Uh, When I talk about core competencies and sort of pushing themselves to achieve, they don't think they're good at everything, Amy. But if they've decided to become good at something, they will read all the books and they will push themselves until they become really, really confident and capable in that specific category.
0: Yeah, well, you and I know a lot about these because we are both NTs.
2: Yeah, we both fall into this group. And I think we've reflected on this as sort of, um, I talk about the competency engine with the NTs, which is... If they're working towards securing or advancing towards mastery in a known competency area, they have enormous energy to bring. There's no sort of effort for it. Um, you know, I'm going through, as you know, I'm raising a venture capital fund. And so I've been absorbing all the books and I've been you know, checking out all the resources I can because I want to raise my uh, capacity in that area. And people think I'm crazy. I'm like, look, you do your Netflix thing. I'm going to listen to this (laughs) latest book on venture capital financing. So whatever that competency area is, um, we we say in the extreme, this means that they're going to get A's in the classes that they really find sort of energizing and uh, fit towards that competency and are going to have a lot harder time doing good performance in the areas outside that competency zone.
0: Yeah, and that completely resonates with me as well. It's why I work so hard to learn all the things I can to be able to do this show and work with my clients. So, I'm wondering, you know, what what if an NT or, you know, doesn't get excited about something or is it just like we're universally excitable about building competencies?
2: <laughs> well, you're lucky if you're working inside that competency zone because they're already going to bring the energy to bear. Where you want to be careful in terms of shutting them down is trampling on their autonomy. NTs really want to have the freedom to figure out how to do things on their own and then go for it. What they don't like is someone telling them precisely, here are the steps. Uh, We have a a great video of a guy saying, you know, look, if you walk into my office and you say, here's what I need you to do and here are all the steps. He's like, I'm going to ask you to go do it (laughs) because you've taken out the part that I would enjoy, which is the figuring out part. They have a lot of creativity. They have a lot of uh, strategic capabilities, and they love imagining how things can be done. If we sort of tamp that down or we shut that down, we don't give them that outlet, it's going to really affect their motivation.
0: Yeah, and I'm, I'm imagining that a lot of times, right, that makes it easier as a manager to be able to tell someone, here's what I need you to do, and then not have to go through all of those detailed steps.
2: Yeah, it's easier for a manager who understands what this person needs, <laughs> right? <laughs> but it's it's tricky when you've got, you know, let's say the first group, the SJ traditionalist for whom, you know, the ideal management style is exactly that, which is spelling out all the steps and then letting the person follow those steps. They're going to often try a technique and approach that's not going to work for this particular group. And that's that's where we have a clash of core values. And in fact, those two particular groups, the SJ traditionalists, and the N t conceptualizers we think produce more than fifty percent of workplace conflicts because their core values are kind of in opposition.
0: Oh, I never thought about that, and yet you and I both married the exact opposites of us.
2: <laughs> I think it's because we're both growth mindset people, and <laughs> so we want to want to see how much we can grow by uh, learning the hard way
0: so so funny, and it makes a lot of sense but as a manager that you need to know who you're managing so that you can be delegating and giving them the right amount of information, the right type of information to be able to do their work effectively and feel good about what they're doing.
2: Uh, this, is, this is the lesson we continue to learn with our clients. So when managers are first promoted into their managerial uh, position for the first time, they tend to go out and manage people in a perfect way if they were the one being managed, right? So they're applying the golden rule, which is, hey, this is what I would want. And they're often stymied when the person does not respond respond as well as they would if they were on the receiving end. And it really breaks down pretty clearly along these temperament lines. So if I'm able to give the person what they're looking for as a manager, then I can bring out their best. But if I'm just giving them what I would want or what I would respond really well to, I'm taking, I'm rolling the dice that the person happens to be similar enough to me or flexible enough in his or her style to meet me halfway. All
0: right. Well, I want to go back to these NTs for one second before I move on and say, There are times where you do need to give very specific steps, right? Maybe it's something that's regulated. Maybe it's a really complex system and you just don't have time for someone to be screwing around in there. Are there particular ways that you can talk to an NT and help help them recognize why you are approaching it this way or kind of get them on board with it, even if it's maybe not their preferred style?
2: Yeah, I I think so. When anytime you're going against the grain of someone's personality, because that's what the situation requires, I'm just going to call that out. I'm going to say, hey, look, I know this is not the fun part for you. I know this is going to require an extra cup of coffee. Here's why we need it. And so, as long as they understand that, and I've been transparent about that, and I'm not asking them to do that 95% of every single day, we're fine. People understand that the job requires flexing a lot against that personality. But I want to call it out to them and be like, hey, look, you know, this is kind of the dirty laundry. (laughs) Like, we have to sort of do this chore. And I think the only other thing that I'd add for this group and the next group we're going to talk about is ensuring that they understand where their assignment fits in the broader scheme of things. Uh, I think it's really hard for the NTs to summon motivation as well as the next group we're going to talk about if they don't understand the context, like, why am I doing this? Where does this fit? If they do that and they're sort of being coached through the, we know this is not going to be the fun part. They're totally fine with that.
0: Awesome. All right, let's go on to this last group.
2: Yeah, so intuition is also present for this group. So thinking about the future from an unconventional possibilities orientation, but now we're swapping out the thinking perspective for the feeling perspective, which is much more people-centered, values oriented What's the impact on the people going to be? We call this group the idealists. They've actually mostly been called idealists by other people. It's a very consistent n- uh, nomenclature. Roughly 15% of the population fall into this group. Their core values are helping others achieve their fullest potential. And side note, they also feel that same compulsion towards themselves. They want to see if they can self-actualize. So I think Maslow, who put self-actualization at the top of the pyramid, probably was an idealist. uh, And that's why it sort of represents the pinnacle for him. So motivationally, if you can see that they're aligned towards helping others achieve their potential, again, unlimited energy. And what they bring to the table is sort of an inspirational style. They're showing other people, I believe in you, I know you can do this, show me. Uh, and it really compels people in a positive way towards achievement
0: Ooh, all right. And what are the things that then irk this person that kind of comes up in the workplace?
2: Yeah, so just a disconnect on the personal level. <laughs> so you know they're they're looking for you know people around them who are supportive, who are going past the sort of mere transactional elements to make the connection. You know, feelers in general go to work to help people they care about. And there's no better example of that than the idealist. So if they feel that it's purely transactional or the relationship wasteland around them is really dry and barren, they're going to find a different job. The only other thing that I'd add to that is work that does not align with their values. So if they feel a little uneasy about what the company or the project represents or that it's having a negative impact on people, they're going to be the canary in the coal mine for that for the team. And they're going to have a stronger reaction than most most of the others.
0: Hmm. Are there conversations we should be having with the NFs in our team to check in on them to kind of make sure that they're feeling connected and aligned? Are there are there ways that we can kind of help foster that and, and use the fact that they're the canary?
2: Yeah, for sure. So you wanna have an open line of communication with them, be like, hey, look, see something, say something when it comes to morale, when it comes to, they're often, they've kind of got an x-ray vision into the people around them and you wanna harness that for sure. Um, I also think that they're the ones who probably felt the biggest impact of the new ways of working, specifically with respect to not having that same face-to-face, informal, non-transactional time that we used to have a lot more of. So building time into your schedule to just connect, get to know them. I did this recently with a guy that I'm working with. I said, look, I'm going to mail you a bottle of wine. I'm going to have the exact same bottle of wine here. And we're not going to talk about work for 90 minutes. Uh, and we just sat there and shot the breeze. And, you know, I, I, it was great for me as an NT to make the connection. It was more essential for him. And, you know, that that's how you build trust is by having those non-transactional conversations.
0: Yeah, and I think it's so important to remember what we talked about before, which is that how you want something may not be how somebody else wants it. So for myself, right, as a T also, it, you know, having conversations like that over Zoom or even just, you know, generally, it's not nearly as important. It's not something I immediately think of like, oh, I should just ask this person how they're doing. But it's essential for the work relationship and it's essential for them, for the other people to feel that I care. So sometimes there's a little bit of the fake it till you make it, but you got to do that. And over time, you really start to build a, a deeper connection with someone and, and they see that authenticity.
2: Sure. So it's it's a funny little thing, but it's a clear phenomenon we've witnessed over the last near 20 years. Thinkers are sold on the idea of making that personal connection time based on the benefit or the ROI that it represents, you know, more motivated people, more connected people, higher trust. But interestingly, they reflect on towards the end of their career that those are the most important parts. <laughs> so it's it's not what they make the decision to do it based on. But upon reflection, they will often say it was all about the people. It was all about the relationships. And while my 25, 30-year-old uh, self didn't see it as obviously, it's, it's clear in
0: retrospect. Yeah, so true. All right. I'm wondering if with our last couple of minutes here, we could walk through a situation and talk about kind of how would you approach it with each of these four different temperaments? Love it. Is there a common example that you like to use?
2: Well, I mean, if we're talking about managerial stuff, right? So I I think some of the biggest watch outs when I'm managing the ad, I'll go just go through some classic blind spots for managing each of the four. So Um, When you're managing the SJs, the first group, the most numerous group, one of the biggest things to sort of miss as a manager is sufficient transparency and information sharing. So if you're not an SJ, you probably don't appreciate how much in terms of volume of information they actually want. They want everything. And if they don't feel that they've gotten that, it's very demotivating because like, oh, why is Rob not telling me the rest of the story? Or why didn't he send over that document? And intriguingly, we've learned from them over the years that they don't actually often need all of the information, but they just like to have it. Um, If they don't have it, then they start to wonder and it sort of eats away at their sort of um, ability to perform at the highest level. So if you have a situation where you're managing an SJ, you want to say things like, and that's all that I have. That's all the information I have. That's what when I say transparency, you've shared everything that you can and you've now told them that. Uh, and it gives them a huge peace of mind. Even if it's like only 25% of the information they need, as long as you've made it clear that you've given them everything, then they, they, they can handle the rest.
0: Awesome, let's keep going.
2: Okay, so yeah, I mean, the SPs, are, they're a little tricky because if you feel as an SP that you're being micromanaged, you basically play a game called blackmail, which is, okay, well, watch me not do it now. Uh, so the harder you push with the SPs, the less you get. So if it's too formal, if it's too uptight, if they feel like you're micromanaging, which, by the way, they often perceive the natural managerial behavior of the SJs, the traditionalists, as micromanaging. So watch out. They're, they're going to basically produce less for you or at least feel the impulse to do that. Their professionalism may, may kick in and actually prevent it, but they're feeling like, a, oh, man, get off my back. And so if we can avoid that with more casual touch bases, like, hey, just checking in. Oh, hey, by the way, did you see the sports game or whatever? Something that keeps it uh, a little bit more playful and fun actually produces a lot more output for them. And I will definitely underscore what I was saying earlier about breaking assignments into smaller sprints. It's a really good technique for them.
0: Awesome. Keep it going.
2: All right. So NTs, I think for them, they want to know that they have the possibility uh, to be the best. Uh, or at least in the top echelon. And so if we can express that to them, like, hey, Rob, look, you're on track to be another top uh, another top performing year. We're basically uh, highlighting their competency in that defined area. And that's very motivating for them. They want to see how far they can go. And I always like to point out, it's not competitive in the sense of, I want to watch you lose while I win. It's they want to compete to see how uh, far they can go with that competency. And so the harder they push and the more you recognize that, the more you're going to get out of them. If they feel that their best possible outcome is mediocrity, you really, really, you're going to have a hard time seeing some uh, strong performance come out of them.
0: All right. And take us home.
2: All right. So then the idealists, you know, look, I, I, I... Always say that you have to have an authentic personal connection with them, which means that if you're clearly just going through the motions or you've attended some sort of seminar on you know, how to be a better manager, they're going to sniff it out. Uh, so you have to really dedicate the time to get to know them on that personal level. And it just goes a huge, huge way from a motivational perspective. One of my favorite examples, uh, my colleague, Michelle, uh, was the head of marketing for one of the largest law firms uh, in Boston where I worked. Uh, and she's like, look, I felt such a strong connection to the management team that they could call me at 11 o'clock at night and be like, oh, Michelle, I'm so sorry. I just need this one thing. She's like, I I would go over the moon for them. That relationship is the motivational wellspring for all of what they do. And so if you have that, watch out. They're going to be the best teammate you have. You just have to create that over time.
0: Awesome. Well, we are out of time. So Rob, where can people learn more about you and your business, Type Coach, and keep up with all this good stuff?
2: Sure. Well, we're at TypeCoach.com and happy to sort of share our story with anyone who wants to learn more.
0: Awesome. Thank you so much for walking us through the four temperaments and giving us the insights into what we can do to work more effectively with, with each of these kinds of folks.
2: Well, I'm flattered that you brought me back, Mamie. I'm pleased to be here, and I really... Uh, hope that your audience continues to get great stuff from your, your whole program.
0: Members of the Modern Manager community at the Sprout level and above get access to Type Coach's motivation and feedback overview document. This will help you gain new insight into what makes people tick and how to tailor your feedback differently to each of the four temperaments for maximum impact. To get this guest bonus and dozens of other member perks, go to com slash join and sign up today. All the links are in the show notes and they can be delivered to your inbox along with the transcript. When you subscribe to my newsletter, find that at themodernmanager.com. Thanks again for listening until next time. Meetings are one of the most critical components of healthy collaboration and teams are at the heart
1: of how we work. Meteor helps you use your time in meetings productively, build healthy relationships with your colleagues and move work forward. To learn how we do it, visit meteor.com. That's M-E-E-T eor.com You've been listening to The Modern Manager. You're already becoming a rock star boss of a thriving team. I can tell. To ensure you never miss an episode, subscribe to the show in your favorite podcast player and join the mailing list at maymeks.com slash podcast. That's M-A-M-I-E-K-S dot com slash podcast to get show notes and other special content delivered directly to your inbox.